Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey there, listeners. I'm really excited to have our next guest on the mic. Sanu Sisiderin. He is the technology lead at QLogic, where he helps global brands implement large-scale architectures, DevOps, automation, and data engineering across multiple technology stacks. In this episode, we will talk about the importance of code-driven development, CAP theorem, and creating evolutionary schemas, and much, much more. Sanu, welcome to the show. And can you share a little bit more about your experience? Hi. Hey, guys. So my name is, I work as the head of technology at QLogic. So my background is primarily in terms of uh, working in distributed systems, cloud-native platforms, big data solutions, streaming platforms, and so on. And most of my day-to-day work is in terms of designing such kind of systems, what's happening in the technology space, what's coming up, and then uh, providing value to that by integrating it with our customer services, etc. Awesome. In your experience, why do so many organizations struggle to be data Driven. The way I see it is that every organization is nothing but a bunch of processes, which is then split across different uh, verticals which are there. And each of these processes are nothing but there's a series of inputs and outputs and uh, whatever the outcomes which are there. But the challenge which is there in most organizations is that these all operate in distinct silos. So there are, it's grouped by different functions and verticals, etc. And everybody knows that they want to be data-driven and they understand the value of data. And you try to understand, like, what are the potential things that data can give you, et cetera. But the challenge is that the what I have uh, seen so far is that the entry into the data space is a little bit uh, steep, especially for non-technical folks. And then there's a lot of coordination which is required between the different uh, teams which is there. And so there might be a common data team, a data platform, which has to work with the different functions and then take a holistic view of the entire processes and see where... Uh, data can be used. The other problem is as well is that data is fundamentally messy, right? And there are so many systems which are there and they're all spread across. So the challenge which, uh, even though every organization wants to be data-driven, the main challenge that I have seen so far is that because of this complexity of the nature of data itself and the specialization that is required for data itself, what happens is that coordinating this by having the different functions, talking to the data teams, etc., often happens in silos and they don't happen collaboratively well enough because neither side understands the other side uh, very clearly. And there's a lot of problem in terms of translation of that. And hence, the value that will be gotten out of it is maybe not in the right direction or the quality of the data is not right, the objectives are not met, or even the way that data solutions itself are developed are time-consuming. And and that's where things like data ops and those kind of solutions uh, where you can iteratively develop and show value becomes a, a potential solution. So I think all these things mean that even though organizations want to be data-driven, there's a lot of collaboration issues which is there, and hence the value is not uh, obtained out of it, or it's too time-consuming to get value out of it. 
And hence, always the data aspects of how do you look at it becomes like a secondary priority and everything else takes as a higher priority. So you keep pushing it down. And after a long period of time, the value still has not been obtained. And I think that's the real practical challenge when it comes to the real world implementations in such cases. And one of your strong backgrounds is building out distributed large scale applications. What are some key development patterns that you use to build out distributed solutions that should be also used more in the data landscape? I think when it comes to distributed systems, the key thing is to understand, uh, the way I think it is like everything is compute network and storage. It doesn't matter whether it's distributed or if it's like a monolithic kind of a system. Now, but with compute network and storage being there, when you are trying to make it distributed, obviously you land into the world of cap theorem. So that's consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. So in a distributed world, you can have only two out of these three things. So I think understanding this and what is a trade-off. So out of these three things, which one do you try to leave out is one thing, which is really important to get into it. Now, on the distributed side of it, typically it goes into you might sacrifice consistency and you might go for an eventual consistency model, which is where a lot of the things happen. And you could have like hybrid models in between as well. But eventually it all progresses down to something like an event-driven kind of an architecture, which really works well in the case of um, distributed systems, especially in microservices architecture. Now, having that kind of a pattern, especially when you combine it with uh, patterns like event sourcing, would be something which is really useful in the data world as well. And we can see more of this happening in terms of, uh, for example, there's something called a reactive manifesto, which tells you about how you can do reactive programming. Um, and there are several implementations of that. Embracing something of that sort with more of event-driven architecture will allow you to have the benefits of event sourcing patterns, scalability, tracing, audit requirements, and a whole lot of other things. So I think having that event-driven architecture mentality is very important. Yep. No, I agree. And you briefly touched on the CAP theorem. Um, for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with that, you mentioned it as three pillars or three kind of sides to the triangle. Can you touch on a little bit more of what those three are and um, why you can only have kind of two of the three? Sure. Cap theorem essentially goes across the, if you consider it like a triangle, each part of it. So the first part is consistency. The second part is about availability. And the third part is about partition tolerance. So consistency means that, so for example, you have in distributed systems, you have several components which are there. Now, do they all report the same sense of truth at at a single point of time? So for example, you do a transaction, it records something on the first system. Uh, Does it record the same thing if I query the second system or the third system which is connected to that? If it's consistent, then that means all these systems will be reporting the same set of facts at that point of time. In terms of availability, it is about making systems, ensuring that you have availability such that if something goes down, you have like load balancing kind of systems, et cetera, where you can have high availability in the platform. So that's what availability talks about. Partition tolerance is a little bit trickier. It's about, for example, in uh, and again, this goes back to two different styles of architecture. So you can have a, a, a master and a worker node kind of an architecture. So that's one kind of thing. Or you could have a masterless an architecture where all the um, systems are talking to each other like in a ring. So there are like different uh, gossip protocols for that. Now, the, the fact is, when we say partition tolerance, it essentially means that what happens if this cluster of systems which are operating together, what happens if there's a network failure? And then if you're trying to join back together, there are scenarios like split brain, et cetera, which can come in where it will see instead of joining back together, once, it, once the networking issue is solved, instead of seeing it as a common system, it can see it as two different systems. So how can it, once the issue is sorted, how can it come back and it can be a one single system back again? So that essential tolerance is what is partition tolerance. 
Now, because of the way this triangle is, if you play through it, it's impossible to have all three at the same point of time. You will have to compromise on one of these things. And this typically depends on what is the business problem that you're trying to solve. In many systems, it's okay to have consistency over a period of time rather than at the instance itself ASAP. So you could have what's called as eventual consistency. So one of the systems gets the uh, state change and that state change is propagated to the other systems over a period of time. You could have availability by having highly available systems, load, load balancing and these are mechanisms of that. Or you could have in partition tolerance world, you could have the quorum of masters and elections and those are the kind of mechanisms which is there. But having all three at the same point of time is not possible. So you'd have to Pick and choose two out of these three things, depending on what kind of uh, outcomes you're looking for. Thank you. What are the top patterns that you have seen with replicating operational data into a data warehouse or data lake? So I guess, for example, is that is, is event-driven messages the best route to go? Is it maybe change data capture on this operational database to your data warehouse? What patterns or tools have you seen? Yeah, I think both patterns make sense. Essentially, the way I see it is every... So again, I come from the application microservices distributed world. So from that perspective, you could have two things. So every microservice would have some sort of a state management system. So this could be like databases or file storages, object storages, whatever it is. So you could have downstream systems uh, which are pulling that data, maybe op logs from databases, etc., processing it and then doing an ETL job on top of it and then putting it into a data warehouse or lake for consumption afterwards. And this could be like a SQL on read or SQL on write afterwards for consumption, etc. But that's downstream. So that's one way to do it. And then you could have CDC on top of it for changes which are happening, etc. There. The second model is primarily, if we consider each microservice to be nothing but a series of so if you consider the state of each microservice to be nothing but a series of events which are passing through, which is changing the state, the benefit of doing that is that you could now hook off of this event. So you could put it into a message queue, a bus or whatever it is. And then you could selectively process the payload from that and then consume it downstream. So I am in favor of the second pattern in most of the cases. There are some cases you'd have to mix the two, but I'm in most uh, more favor to the second pattern, simply because the reason being that the whole point of having a microservices architecture is that teams should be able to operate independently. They should not break other microservices through their actions, so they should be able to operate independently with high confidence and release at high velocity, and the whole DevOps culture which comes from that. Now, having the, the ETL pipelines, et cetera, directly connected to the state management systems would mean that you're introducing a high coupling between the teams, which is there. And then if the application team is changing something, they would have to communicate back to the data team, hey, we have made this change, we are changing the schema, et cetera, and so on. And that introduces a lot of potential issues which can happen. And it's not a very uh, ideal solution because things can break in production and whatnot as you go forward. So I'm not very much in favor of connecting directly to the state system, but rather leveraging event sourcing patterns where we take the events and use that as a um, fundamental source of uh, state and operate from that. And apart from that, it also brings other benefits. For example, you could have an audit trail, which is built from the event sourcing. You could have immutability, which is built in. For example, you can show that the events have not changed, et cetera, which is really useful in the case of compliances, whether it's GDPR or CCPA, et cetera. You can show that things have not been tampered with. And yeah, so it introduces this and it allows you to operate in a truly DevOps kind of a thing. But there is a catch mm -hmm. there. So the catch which I have noticed is that the payload of the event is very important when you're operating downstream. So if you change the payload of the event, as me, me as a team, if I'm developing a microservice and I change the payload of the event without telling the other people about it, 
obviously the downstream systems which might be operating off of that payload will probably break if I change the data type or the structure of the data itself. And I think that's where having some sort of uh, frameworks like protobuf or some sort of disciplined frameworks which allow you to have an evolution of schema but without breaking things. So it's always additive changes and uh, not removal of things. I think that can be helpful. So combining a schema evolutionary framework and a schema management framework protobuf with event sourcing would be the way I would think of solving this problem. Awesome. And would the order of a, if order of events was important, would that change your mind on maybe going the event route or no? It is going to be a very important consideration if one after another. So that is potentially, yes, it is one of the key uh, points which has to be considered. But there are ways to preserve the order of events while you process of these event sourcing pattern as well. So that would be one way to look at it. But yes, uh, certainly in some cases, uh, in many cases, it can be order doesn't matter. In some cases, order does matter. So yes, that's a very important consideration to be done. And is there a particular event messaging system that is more popular or that you think is better? Kafka, Event Hubs, AWS Event Bridge, or another service bus option? Personally, I tend to like Kafka quite a lot because it's a very good system is the way I think it. Like you can have, you can put like millions of events per second to it and it can process all that. But the downside of Kafka is the, uh, for anybody who's operated Kafka at uh, scale uh, would say this, um, is the uh, operational aspect of Kafka. It's it's not a joke to operate Kafka at scale, especially on the administrative side of things. There are a lot of things to be done. And one of the problems is the way that Kafka couples into, for example, the brokers. If you can't have like brokers which go back and this and another broker taking its instance, it's, it's a little bit difficult to orchestrate such kind of scenarios. And so on the operational side of it, Kafka is, is a little bit cumbersome, especially at scale. So while Kafka is good in terms of its, um, scaling, in terms of putting a huge number of events into it, the operational side is something which definitely has to be considered as something which is a little bit of a challenge. On to the cloud side, I think systems like EventBridge or Kinesis, Streams, etc. would be good options, uh, AWS options, uh, even on the Azure side with EventHub, etc. Those are good options as well. But then, of course, the the thing to be played is uh, the vendor lock-in factor and how can you move across the different things. Now, there are some um, things which are happening in that space to make it more um, neutral to vendors, but still have these different platforms. Like, for example, Cloud Events is a very good project which tries to bridge these uh, different systems together. So these would be some of the considerations. Are there particular guiding principles that you follow when building operational processes off of a data warehouse or a data lake? So I think uh, the key is, again, going back to our earlier point about having more of an event-driven sort of an architecture. I think that would, and particularly backing backed by event sourcing systems, uh, whether that be Kafka or whatever that is. I think that's a key thing to consider. Now, the other thing is, now, once you have those kind of events, how do you process it? How do you go around? Especially to be considered is... Uh, because it's distributed, we have to factor a failure. It's very likely that there could be failures or interruptions, et cetera, especially in cloud, if you're using like ephemeral services, et cetera. How do you orchestrate all these things is a very important thing. And that's where I think uh, data ops has got a lot to add on to that. Uh, how do you connect these pipelines? How do they operate? How do they handle failures? How do they all operate without the significant overhead? The other pattern which is there would be in terms of, again, coming from that microservices world, more about observability. So whether that be all sorts of logging, monitoring, distributed tracing, et cetera, all those things being baked into the, the data side as well. Having that sort of an op uh, observability into all the platforms and the pipelines, I think those are some uh, key aspects. 
And uh, one more thing I would like to add would be there's something called as the enterprise integration patterns. This is something which has been popularized as a separate concept, but one of the frameworks which implements this is uh, Apache Camel, which is quite popular in the big data space. So if you look at how Camel handles these variety of scenarios uh, by using maybe uh, splitters, aggregators, deadlet accused messaging, whatnot. So these could also be some of the patterns which could be used. And there are several frameworks which implement uh, enterprise integration patterns. So those would be some of the uh, top things I can think of. Yeah, no, great. Do you have an opinion on the best approach or recommendations to capturing metadata? It sounds like it's probably going to be based off the, the systems generating these events and you just include it within the event and you have a framework and pattern for following that and capturing that. Yeah, I think there are several. So again, the problem in this case is that the nature of data is messy. It's spread across so many systems. Mm -hmm. There could be several quality issues, which is there. There could be confusions when it comes to real life, like, hey, which one is the actual right data? Because they all talk some flavor of the truth, but may not be oh, yeah. the right flavor of the truth. So how do you identify? So I think the again, the key here, which I've seen is happening more and more now, which is probably a good thing, is there's this how from monolithic we had a shift into microservices mentality and devops culture i think data ops takes some of those parts and takes it forward specifically in the case of data and one of the key things there i think is apart from the metadata systems which capture the, the different uh, uh, data sources and the pipelines and whatnot i think one key thing is this mentality that everything can be represented as code so everything as code that whole principle i think is very important in this case and why is that important is because once you can represent everything as code, you can version control it. You could straight up go into any source control systems and you could record it there. And you could then have things like, for example, even potentially GitOps concepts coming from that. So just like how GitOps and that has uh, enabled a lot of these kind of management to be simpler on the application side of it, I think on the data side also it's very important. And I think some evidence of that is obviously the data ops uh, processes in terms of managing all these things and uh, the tasks. And there are several ways to do it in data ops. But also, for example, things like DBT, for example, which allows you to have a scripted version of how the pipeline should operate. Or Apache Beam is a good project which does those. So I think having everything as version controlled is very important in terms of storing this metadata into the uh, version control system. That's one. And second thing is, uh, I think going back to, especially when we consider event sourcing, having that sort of a discipline where you allow people to change their events, but not in such a way that it will break everything downstream but allow them to change it is very important. So having schema evolutionary considerations, whether that be with systems like uh, Protobuf or, or Avro or something of that sort, I think having that and version controlling it, and there are several ways to discover it. There are schema registries, et cetera, where you can discover these things from. So that then the different versions of different parts of the system where across the data ops, or even when you're reading the data, et cetera, you can still reuse those schema and then discover things and then take the data from that. So I think these are some of the key things to consider apart from the traditional metadata management. In your experience uh, across the IT ecosystem, what's been your biggest lesson learned over the years since implementing these large-scale solutions? Yeah, I think the landscape has shifted quite a bit. So when I started working, it was more of a, you, could, you would have typically like a monolithic system and mm -hmm. you deploy onto that monolithic system and everybody's working on the same code base and changing things and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the shift from that into more of a continuous delivery and then splitting it by the by something like Conway's law and then splitting the team according to the domain and then having these kind of microservices to operate off 
and having that kind of a velocity of where you're releasing things, but then having all these kind of processes and checks in place so that even though you're releasing fast, you're not breaking things. I think that has been a big shift which has happened. And I think, again, that goes back to, again, distributed computing and all those kind of things. And I think cloud significantly enables that, right? Because you could, again, everything is not, everything is just about compute network and storage. But then the point about cloud is it's programmable, right? So you could have everything expressed as like infrastructure as code, templates, whatnot, and you version control things. And every change that you make is not done through hand. It's automated. It's done through pipelines, et cetera. So I think when you combine the cloud and cloud native and even serverless now and combine that with the distributed nature of developing things in a microservices architecture, I think that's been a big paradigm shift to take there. And on the big data side, I think I think MapReduce is the key thing that I would think about. The whole concept of how everything can be broken up into a series of MapReduce stages. I think that's been pretty big and then resulting in all the way into Lucene and then from there into Hadoop coming up as a separate thing and then Spark in memory computation and so on. How do you distribute that? And I think now there is going to be a convergence between these two worlds, between microservices and the data side. And so that's something I'm uh, quite excited about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, I guess two, two to five years from now, what do you think that looks like from a, the convergence of some of these data processing and microservices? Yeah, so I think this is one area that I'm keenly looking into and I'm hoping it happens as well. So it's more about, so at the uh, uh, beginning, I had mentioned about the reactive manifesto and the reactive programming. Mm-hmm. Now, com- combining these two would essentially look like some sort of a streaming microservice world where you're mixing both the things together. And the microservice itself would be able to handle some of the big data operations. And a good example of this would be something like Kafka Streams, which combines the aspects of Kafka from the big data world into the microservices world and then brings both the thing, both the together. So I think that's uh, going to be a pretty interesting thing to watch out. And I think there are also frameworks like uh, Akka Streams, for example, which uh, also goes more into that kind of a direction. The other thing which I think is quite interesting that's happening is again this is just because of the nature of cloud there's so many storage options which are available in cloud so how do you leverage the different storage solutions especially when you consider like object storage for example is is several factors cheaper than uh, disk storage for example so how can you combine that but without sacrificing on the performance of the system also making it not so complex that the end users will get confused. Hey, where is this data coming from? So you handle it in a transparent fashion. So there's an interesting project which does this. It's called Aluxio for people who want to look it up. So it combines this in a transparent way. And then you can have a tiered caching across the different layers. So whether that be solid state, hard disk, all the way to object storages, even in memory as well. You could store it in a tiered fashion so that end users don't uh, pay a performance penalty for it, but your cost also is not out of the sky, essentially. So I think combining these storage options in such a way that you could get the best of cost as well as performance, combining those two things, I think that's something that a lot of the data platforms are moving towards, uh, especially you could see that with uh, Redshift, uh, Spectrum, with Snowflake, uh, all going into that sort of a direction. So I think that would also be something uh, which is going to evolve and become smarter over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And what was the name of that storage solution you just mentioned? It's called Aluxio. That's A-L-L-U-X-I-O. I think it used to be Great. called as Project Tachyon before, but yeah, now okay. it's called Aluxio. I'll have to check that out. So to wrap up, do you have a favorite systems book that you would recommend to our listeners? 
Sure. So there are different uh, there are different books, but I think on the DevOps side, I think obviously Phoenix Project is something which is uh, very famous in terms of understanding the DevOps mentality and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And also on the architectural side, one of the books which has influenced me quite a lot is Domain Driven Design. Mm-hmm. So that's a book from Eric Evans, I think. And also in terms of uh, CQRS, from I think there's a good. Um, uh, architectural book from Microsoft side around CQRS patterns. So that's been good. But I think the book which has helped me a lot, not specifically in terms of giving me solutions, but it has been in terms of the thought process. I would pick up Design Patterns, the original book from the Gang of Four, so where it goes through all the design patterns. And I think the reason why it does, so when you combine the design patterns, um, which is primarily from an object-oriented perspective, how do you design things? But then when you combine that with the uh, famous saying, so there's a saying that any uh, problem in computer science can be solved by another layer of indirection. So it's like the indirection problem or the fundamental theorem or something of that sort. So I think the point being that you could have, create some layers of indirection to solve any sort of problem that can come up. I think that's very powerful. It gives you the confidence that you can solve any problem in any way. And I think that's exactly what design patterns show you as well by Allowing these layers of indirection, how do you solve common problems? So I think that fundamental thought process has been very important. Yeah. No, thanks for recommending. If our listeners want to connect and reach out to you afterwards, where can they go? Yeah, so you can connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. So I guess my profile would be available with this podcast. Or you could go to the organization I work at. So that's uh, QLogic. Uh, that's uh, C-U-E-L-O-G-I-C dot com, Q-Logic dot com. And you could go there and you could visit our social media handles, see the events that we participate in, talk at, speak at, etc. So you could follow us from there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sunu, so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation and sort of diving deep on distributed microservices. So thank you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.